Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 4.31, The Aftermath of Bunker Hill. The British had set out with the goal of capturing Bunker Hill on June 17th, and they had done just that. If we are to go by the convention of saying that the winning army is the one that captures its strategic aims, there is no debate who had won the day. The British now controlled the entire Charlestown Peninsula. There certainly were some on the American side who viewed Bunker Hill as a loss. The problem is that the truth is far more complicated. Yes, the British had captured their objective. However, that victory had come at a staggering price of over 1,000 casualties. This was equal to one half of the British troops who had originally landed in Charlestown for the battle. The American Revolution, as is the case with most wars, was fought on multiple fronts. Of course, first and foremost, it was a military engagement. However, it was also very much a war of words and of the press. Both sides needed to figure out how to best present the events. With a battle like Bunker Hill, however, this becomes a complicated feat. Although the British had technically won the day, nobody back home in London wanted to hear that they had been routed by an irregular American militia made up of some backcountry farmers and rabble. Likewise, the Americans were, for the first time, having to spin a loss in a positive light. In the coming months, both sides would engage in a war in the press to win support. When London learned about the events at Bunker Hill, and months later when the wounded soldiers began to return to Great Britain, allegations were made that the Americans had violated the code of war. The British press claimed that the Americans were not fighting the war in a civilized manner. They were horrified at the American tactics of ambush-style attacks. There were even claims that the Americans may have used poisoned musket balls at Bunker Hill. There were plenty of people, of course, in England who were eager to eat up this anti-American propaganda. A decade of resistance and now outright revolt against the Crown did not exactly help to garner sympathies for the American cause. Amid these allegations of the Americans violating the codes of war, they pointed to the fact that the rebels were specifically targeting officers. They weren't wrong. Officer losses at Bunker Hill had been stunning. In the book Scars of Independence by Hogler Hawk, he states that one-eighth of all British officer losses for the entire six-year war occurred at Bunker Hill. The British were not alone in trying to control the narrative. Americans were making claims right back at the British regulars and the officers for their atrocities. We began discussing last time the death of Dr. Warren and the letter from Abigail Adams to John Adams regarding the treatment of his body. Again, turning to Hogler Hawk here, he points out that of the work being put out in the aftermath of both Lexington and Bunker Hill, there was a common thread of unity. Unity was, after all, the single most important thing in the summer of 1775 to the Americans. If this war was to succeed, whatever success actually meant at this point, it was going to require the unified efforts of all of the colonies. If they had any hope of defeating the British army, the war could not simply be a New England rebellion. And they all knew it. 
Reports of growing unity were not just mere propaganda either by this point. Despite reports from the royal governors in the colonies that the rebellion was isolated to a small group of dissidents, intelligence back in London painted a far more dire picture of colonies that were indeed finding that necessary unity. The British leadership in America was also facing the very real reality of just how tenuous their hold on North America truly was. How expressed concern at the prospect of defeating the Americans when there were virtually endless places for them to fortify? If the Americans could just keep entrenching and forcing victories to look like what we had just seen at Breed's Hill, the British would have little realistic hope of winning the war. The truth was that the Americans really did not need to even win battles to win the war. What they did need to do, however, is make sure to make those battles that they chose to fight count. You can lose a battle so long as you extract a sufficient price for it, which is exactly what they had just done. The Battle of Bunker Hill would mark another kind of turning point for the American war effort. If the American military response had thus far been a ragtag bunch of rabble, it was now going to be up to George Washington to bring order. Arriving in Cambridge on July 2nd, it took a bit of bouncing around before Washington found acceptable lodging in a mansion that was owned by a loyalist. After setting up his household, one that included two cooks, multiple servants, and five slaves, including his personal body slave Billy Lee, Washington set to the task of command. Upon his arrival, he found an army that was lacking in any meaningful command structure, which severely limited his ability to delegate his duties. This means that menial tasks of all kinds that would generally never make it up to the commanding officer fell directly into the lap of Washington. There was nothing resembling military discipline either. Men would often leave their guard posts early, would wander off at night to sleep elsewhere, would fraternize with the enemy, and took unnecessarily long furloughs. The officer corps that should have reined in this general disarray did little to nothing to get control of it. Beyond that, however, Washington found that the army had no training in tactics, nor any real idea even what their own strengths were. The day after he pulled into Cambridge, he requested an inventory of supplies and men, and was appalled that it took days to pull these numbers together. Washington was dealing with a serious supply shortage. Most critically among these was gunpowder. What Washington therefore was looking at was an army ill-prepared on how to fight a war of this scope, or really even how to function as an army. Compounding this problem was a dire supply shortage that risked limiting Washington's ability to fight in the first place. The effect of this is that Washington quickly found himself inundated in work that would have traditionally been passed down to far more junior officers. He took to issuing long, extremely detailed daily orders to attempt to rein in his new army. All of this while setting out to solve the problems that came with serious supply shortages. Washington quickly began setting down hard rules about the conduct of both the officers and the infantry alike. This was not mere lip service either. A strict disciplinary code quickly took over the American camp. 
Court martials became commonplace, with lashes being a staple punishment for those not following Washington's strict orders. Although lashes could help rein in the most serious and obvious offenses, Washington realized that the solution was ultimately going to come through constructing his officer corps. One of the things that really worried Washington was the intermingling relationships between the existing officers and the men under their command. He routinely saw the two groups acting like old friends, something that he felt to be detrimental to military discipline. Keep in mind, though, that this really is what these men were. Despite the decision to rename it the Continental Army, that name did not exactly convey the reality of what Washington had at his disposal. Until just weeks earlier, the army had been militia companies made up of men from individual towns. If it seemed like the officers and the men under their command were old friends, it's because that is exactly what they were. Often the officers were those who the militia had voted in as their leadership, something that Washington hated as a practice. They had been friends, neighbors, and acquaintances long before the war broke out. Now, however, with the war actually at hand, these relationships made for a disturbing lack of discipline. The solution for Washington was an officer corps that would maintain a healthy amount of aloofness about them. He, of course, did not want his officers to be cruel or dismissive of their troops. Rather, he wanted to foster an appropriate relationship that is critical for sending men into situations where their lives would very much be on the line. This plan also provided him with an opportunity to better administer the army. Washington hoped that if he could focus on better educating and preparing the new officer corps, then they would be able to do the same for the men under their command. Finally, Washington had to grapple with the fact that the war was going to require men, something that he was also in short supply of. Part of the problem with the Continental Army was that, really, it was just that in name only. In early July, the army was still primarily an assemblage of New England militia companies. There were troops coming from the colonies to the south, but they were not yet there. Furthermore, the conclusion of the Massachusetts leadership is that recruiting further men to arms was going to be difficult, considering the number from Massachusetts that had already taken up arms. Washington was staunchly opposed to allowing blacks to fight, regardless of if they were free or enslaved. Let us remember that Washington was a Virginian, where just a few months earlier, there was real fear of a slave uprising gripping the entire region. These fears had hardly abated by July, and beyond just viewing them as being inferior, Washington was not about to arm any of the black population. Although, I do think it is important to mention here that black men did in fact take up arms and died in both Lexington and Concord, as well as at Bunker Hill. On the whole, Washington was pleased with how the first month of his command had been. He had been widely accepted as the commander by pretty much everybody. Artemis Ward, who had been commanding the New England forces, accepted the downgrade without any real kind of protest. As Washington was busy trying to create the Continental Army, he could not ignore the fact that there was indeed an active war taking place. The first steps, therefore, for the new commander was to begin the process of entrenching around Boston to ensure that the British were stuck inside the city 
without an easy way to escape. As Washington was busy entrenching along the line, the British were doing the exact same thing. George Washington did briefly flirt with the idea of launching an offensive campaign against the British in Boston towards the end of August, but found little support for launching such an attack from the senior leadership. Washington, who would earn so much of his future reputation for avoiding unnecessary battles and tactical withdrawals, would settle in with the mission of making sure that the British remained stuck in Boston. Both to the north and south of Washington, events were busily progressing. After having promised not to invade Canada just a few weeks earlier, Congress did an about-face and decided that invading Canada was the thing to do. There were a few things here that helped inform Congress to authorize Philip Schuyler to move north on Canada. First, Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen were telling Congress that this would be an easy mission. British Governor Guy Carleton was lagging behind in his recruiting effort. If there was ever a moment to attack, it was now, before the British could better reinforce Canada. If Congress needed more encouraging, other than the promise of an easy victory, there was the real fear that Carleton was going to attempt to essentially do the reverse of what we saw during the French and Indian War. The specific fear is that Carleton was building a war party that would move up the St. Lawrence, into the Richelieu, into Lake Champlain, then Lake George, and finally on into the Hudson. Doing this would have the practical effect of cutting the colonies in two and isolating New England from the rest of the colonies. Of course, this conflicts with those reports from Allen and Arnold that Carleton was weak at the moment. But nobody was interested in waiting around until a time came when he wasn't, and the Hudson River Valley was at real threat of being overrun. With that, I am going to go ahead and pause on the mission into Canada here. A lot happened on that front, and because of that, I've decided that the Canadian Campaign of 1775 has earned its very own episode. So, we're going to leave that for a little ways down the road. So, with Canada hanging out for a bit, let us jump back to the south. Washington's Continental Army was anything but that in July 1775. He was working with the New England Army. However, Congress had ordered troops from Virginia north to help reinforce the New England troops. Virginia, and indeed the entire South, had been sent reeling when hit by the ominous threats by Lord Dunmore to free the slaves. Fears which certainly had not been alleviated by June. Although fighting thus far had been contained to New England, Militarization was quickly taking place throughout the southern colonies as well. On June 4th, South Carolina created a 1,500-man army. The stated purpose for the newly minted army was twofold. To defend against the aggressions of the hostile parliament that had attacked at Lexington and Concord, and to help preserve the public order under the constant threat of slave insurrections. There was something of a response from the Loyalists who formed their own military associations, seemingly as a way to check the new Whig associations. However, they also had the stated purpose of defending against any slave uprisings. This brings up at least the possibility that, had the right set of circumstances prevailed, you could have had Whigs fighting alongside Loyalists to quell a slave rebellion. 
The South Carolina Military Association did pull off an impressive feat of deception in June 1775. They had managed to capture a packet of letters heading to Thomas Gage from the actual colonial governor, James Wright. The association went right ahead and replaced those letters with forgeries. They went so far as to forge Wright's wax seal. As for the contents of the letters, they simply reassured Gage that all was peachy and that there was no reason to send troops or anything like that. Throughout, the South Royal Governors were begging Gage for troops that he just did not have. Meanwhile, paranoia gripped the colonists who were busy convincing themselves that George III was on the verge of freeing all of the slaves. This paranoia often fed atrocities, as colonists took to hanging anybody who they perceived as even the slightest of threats. In one instance, a free black man named Thomas Jeremiah was arrested and held for planning an insurrection in South Carolina. A harbor pilot by trade, Jeremiah was amongst the wealthiest black men in all of the colonies. Despite virtually no evidence, outside the testimony of a few slaves that Jeremiah was collecting arms and ammunition, he was sentenced to hang. To be sure, the colony's governor, William Campbell, who overheard the evidence, recognized that there was insufficient evidence. Campbell, however, also had been made very aware that should he not sentence Jeremiah to death, the local Whigs would take matters into their own hands. On August 18th, the sentence was carried out, and Jeremiah was hanged. Thomas Jeremiah was far from being an isolated incident of violence against both free and enslaved blacks alike. Throughout the South, similar events took place as everybody remained on a knife's edge. All of this happening at a moment when everybody on both sides of the conflict were preparing for what was to come. During the summer and into the autumn of 1775, the war remained contained in New England. However, everybody knew that the situation was temporary. The war was coming to the South. It was just a matter of time. Even as the smoke was clearing over Breed's Hill, the Congress meeting in Philadelphia was still busy grappling with the question of exactly what they were doing. In mid-June, at roughly the same time that the American defenders extracted every drop of blood they could atop Breed's Hill, they were voting to assemble a Continental Army under the command of George Washington in Philadelphia. Yet there remained a shrinking though vocal contingent in the Congress that still fought hard for reconciliation. At the forefront of this group was John Dickinson. Recall that the first Congress had drafted a letter to George III and that the letter had fallen on deaf ears. Although Dickinson approved of the colonies defending themselves, he remained committed to attempting to bridge the gap between the colonies and Great Britain. His sincere hope was that the British were not interested in a war to subjugate their colonies, and that when they learned about the news of Lexington and Concord, it would encourage them to come up with a solution that did not include war. On June 3rd, Congress appointed Dickinson as the chairperson of a committee tasked with a second appeal to the king, an appeal that would become known to history as the Olive Branch Petition. Among the chief opponents to this petition was John Adams. As we are going to see, Dickinson was always suspicious of the New Englanders, believing, not altogether incorrectly, that their end goal was independence. Adams despised the idea of another petition to the king. They had tried that 
it had failed. Adams detested the idea of the colonists begging George III to come to the negotiating table, fearing that it made the colonies look weak. Adams further expressed a concern that Great Britain would exploit this petition in order to drive a wedge between the colonies. As it turned out, driving a wedge in relations between the colonies did not even require Great Britain. Following a spirited debate in early June over the drafting of a letter to George III, where Adams vocally opposed the petition, Dickinson outright threatened to break Pennsylvania off from the New Englanders entirely. Adams was appalled at being scolded by Dickinson. Their relationship would further sour when some private writings of Adams regarding Dickinson had, via the British who had captured them, made their way back to John Dickinson. The relationship was permanently broken, and the two men would never speak again. Regardless of the falling out between Dickinson and Adams, it had become a real concern among some of the delegates that the New Englanders were in fact eyeing independence. Fearing that striking too radical of a tone too early would spook more conservative delegates, Adams and company backed off of their opposition to the Olive Branch petition. Although Dickinson got his way, and the petition was prepared, in Congress few showed any active interest in the measure. On July 5th, Dickinson presented the Olive Branch petition to Congress, where it was passed with little in the way of debate. As much as I enjoy going through these petitions, and as much as I do have a soft spot for Dickinson, I'm not going to do much in the way of a deep dive on the Olive Branch petition, because really, it does absolutely nothing new. The letter professes all the usual niceties and begs George III to intervene in the crisis and bring an end to the fighting. The letter is short and to the point, without doing much of anything other than requesting that the king help restore the peace. The letter was signed without anything in the way of fanfare, and on July 8th, it was sent to the king. All the colonists could do now was wait and see if George III would acquiesce and restore the peace to his kingdom. As it would turn out, Dickinson was not the only person who was interested in olive branches during the summer of 1775. The North Ministry found themselves wanting to take a final stab at avoiding a full-scale war with their colonies. What Parliament was offering was an agreement that they would not tax the Americans, so long as the colonies could issue their own internal taxes to cover their share of the empire's expenses. This essentially boils down to each of the individual colonies giving a sum of money to cover the military expenditures of the empire, while at the same time supporting their own civil governments. The proposal proved to be wildly unpopular. In Virginia, Lord Dunmore called the Burgesses to consider the offer by North, as well as address the worsening conditions along the frontiers. If Dunmore had hoped that the sessions would prove to be less radical, with Patrick Henry up in Philadelphia as a delegate, he was soon to be deeply disappointed. The Burgesses quickly took up the issue of gunpowder, something that had been a real, and excuse the pun, powder cake for months. These talks became so concerning for Dunmore that he feared for his personal safety, and eight days into the session ended up fleeing to the relative safety of a warship right off the coast, where he would attempt to conduct the colony's business. The job of responding to the petition from North for the Virginians fell to Thomas Jefferson. When Dunmore had called the House of Burgesses, Jefferson was already planning on leaving to replace Pitt and Randolph at the Congress in Philadelphia. 
Now, realistically, nobody who was aware of the situation in the colonies had much hope that anybody was going to accept the North petition. It was simply far too little, far too late. The problem, as Jefferson wrote for Virginia, was that nothing in the petition addressed the actual issue. Rather, the plan did little but shift the oppression from one place to another. The actual burdens were unchanged. Furthermore, the North planned in nothing to address the question of parliamentary supremacy over the colonies. By the summer of 1775, the colonists were done with Parliament. There might have been a path to reconciliation with the king as the sovereign. However, they were unwilling to accept that Parliament had any authority over them. If you think about it for a moment, it was a wild request of the North Ministry to ask that the Americans pay their fair share of the colonial defense when British troops were literally shooting American colonists. There was a huge number of British reinforcements planning to cross the Atlantic to bring war to the colonies. Everybody understood that this war was going to expand beyond New England. Unsurprisingly, nobody was all that interested in helping to pay for that conflict. This is to say nothing for the fact that the proposed offer was silent on lifting any of those hated parliamentary acts. Further issue was taken with the fact that the petition was sent to the individual colonies and not to their duly selected representatives in Congress. In this instance, British leadership had little choice in the matter. They certainly did not recognize the Continental Congress as having any authority. In fact, they viewed it as being nothing more than an illegal assembly. Should they have addressed the congressional delegates directly, it would have had the consequence of granting the Congress a degree of legitimacy that the British simply were not going to allow. The problem, though, is that for the colonies, the decision to send the petition to the individual colonies was seen as an attempt to divide those same colonies. By sending the petition to the individual colonies and bypassing Congress, it showed that Great Britain was still treating the colonies as individual entities. By this point, however, the colonies had taken on a far different sense of themselves. Jefferson wrote in his response that Virginia would share the same fate as its sister colonies, and that they will not abandon the union that they had agreed to. This is important to note because it gives us some insight into the views of Thomas Jefferson, roughly one year before he would write the Declaration of Independence. Although Thomas Jefferson would still consider himself to be a Virginian, he is clearly thinking about the larger collection of colonies by this point. Jefferson, in his response, indicated that the Virginians might be willing to listen. However, the cost of doing business was going to be a complete lifting of the Navigation Acts. Jefferson argued that the loss of revenue to the colonies, through the use of restricted trade, far exceeded the colonists' fair contributions to the defense of the empire. Historian Woody Holton argues that the Navigation Acts are often overlooked as a motivation for the American Revolution, in light of the fervor over taxation. The fact that Jefferson brings them up here provides us with interesting insight into the thought process of the era. Complaints over the Navigation Acts were certainly nothing new. There has been grumbling and the occasional rebellion over them for the last century. However, in this context, it indicates that the colonies are looking forward towards the potential economic expansion 
that less regulation could bring. Last season, we talked about how much the colonial economy had expanded during that long period of salutary neglect. It was no secret that the Navigation Acts were holding back an American economy that the colonists were eager to expand. Next time, we are going to relive our glory days of the French and Indian War. We will once again find ourselves traveling along the St. Lawrence River, hitting up all of our old haunts, including both Montreal and Quebec. Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold had told Congress that a mission against Canada would be easy. When we return, we are going to find out if they were right. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we watch the Americans invade Canada. Canada.